Welcome to Platypod, the official podcast of the Committee for the Anthropology of Science, Technology, and Computing. Here, we host dialogues and conversations about the theories, tools, and social interactions that explore questions at the intersection of anthropology and science and technology studies. I'm Svetlana. And I'm Kim, and we are your hosts today. We're two early career scholars whose research interests pivot around disability. For our first series of episodes, we engage with scholars working at the intersections of disability, science and technology studies, and anthropology. So the first thing I would like just uh, to ask you to please introduce yourself by saying your name and affiliation. I am Laura Heath-Stout. I am, at the time of recording, a Wenner-Gren Hunt postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Beginning in August 2022, I will be a full-time lecturer in the university writing program at Brandeis University. And I'm Rebecca Eli Long. I'm currently a PhD candidate in anthropology and gerontology at Purdue University. Would each of you tell us more about the research that you're doing? What brought you to study ableism in anthropology and higher education more broadly? And how do you study it? I have been studying the um, the ways that intersecting systems of oppression shape the discipline of archaeology, uh, which is my background is in archaeology, although now I do kind of ethnographic work about archaeologists. Um, and so this began in my dissertation research when I focused on racism, sexism, and heterosexism. Um, but a handful of my interviewees uh, had non-apparent disabilities, and they really persuaded me that I needed to be talking about ableism as well, uh, especially because I was aiming for intersectionality. And so, um, yeah, so in more recent years, the project has shifted to also include discussion of both classism and ableism in the discipline of archaeology. Uh, so I took the stories that these four original interviewees told me uh, and uh, published an article in the International Journal of Historical Archaeology earlier this year called The Invisibly Disabled Archaeologists, that's specifically about the experiences of archaeologists with non-apparent disabilities. Um, but then for the book that I'm currently writing, uh, I did a whole bunch more interviews, uh, some follow-up interviews with dissertation interviewees, uh, but also interviews with new uh, folks who had not talked to me before. Part of that was that I specifically wanted some of my interviewees to be people who have apparent disabilities, and there was no one in my original sample who had apparent disabilities. And so I did I think it was 72 interviews for the book and then a further 30 interviews um, for the sort of second round. And so right now I'm working on that book and it's intersectional, um, but looking at how ableism and other intersecting forms of oppression shape who does archaeology, what kinds of experiences people have in school and on career paths in archaeology, and then therefore 
what kinds of research about the human past archaeologists are able to do, given the sort of limitations of our diversity and the uh, equity issues. I also have hopes for some a future project to focus more specifically on disability and archaeology. I have some ideas for looking at equity issues among archaeologists in the present and also using disability studies theory to look at uh, disabled people in the archaeological record. So going chronologically here, I began to understand myself as disabled shortly before I started my undergraduate degrees in anthropology and art which I think really crystallized interests for me in visual representation and sort of our structures of power and knowledge. At the same time, I was encountering academic ableism, though I wouldn't have used that phrase at the time. But I was really eager to make meaning and understand these experiences. And cultural anthropology gave me the tools to do that, even though my courses never really directly addressed disability or ableism. And this lack of attention wasn't something I noticed much originally, but as I began various forms of field work, both domestically and internationally, the experience of being disabled through both neurodiversity and various chronic illnesses just became so apparent. And this manifested in two ways as I moved into graduate education. First, I had sort of a deep sense that these experiences were being overlooked in academia, including in anthropological training, which led to a desire to find ways to make personal and collective experiences of disability in higher education visible through reflexive and arts-based methods. And to do this to develop evidence of the need for systemic change. And secondly, I found myself with a real longing to do ways of ethnography to challenge the ideal of able-bodiedness in fieldwork. And through pure fate, I had a housemate teach me how to knit, which absolutely re revolutionized how I thought I interacted with the world around me. And I realized this sounds a little hyperbolic, but it was an insight that as it developed over time, really made me think about how knitting aligned with autistic sensory preferences and reshaped the type of interactions I had when I brought knitting with me to do field work. And so when I moved into my PhD coursework, I didn't actually set out to include knitting in my dissertation. It was just sort of a joke for a while. And then I actually started thinking more about knitting and knowledge production in academia specifically through understanding knitting as what some autistic people might term a special interest or really intense passion that in diagnostic terms, we could call this like restricted and repetitive behaviors. So thinking about special interests as this term where autistic people make meaning around our experiences and shows moments of joy and enthusiasm, I wanted to bring this concept into my research and I developed a research plan involving participatory textile making and knitting to engage in different types of ethnographic work. And to tie this back to ableism in higher education, I see knitting as a chance to rethink what knowledge generation in academia can look like. Thank you. This all sounds super interesting. Uh, what is your working definition of ableism? 
So here we're kind of interested in the questions, how you do you recognize uh, ableism in its forms? What are the different kinds of ableism? And in your experience, who is affected by ableism and in what ways? Sure. So I frequently refer to T.L. Lewis's working definition of ableism, which defines it, I mean, sort of paraphrasing here, as a system of assigning value to people's bodies and minds based on socially constructed and therefore deeply racist, imperialist, sexist, and et cetera, ideas of normalcy, productivity, fitness, and so forth. And one of the reasons I like this definition, in addition to it coming out of Black disability justice that I think is imperative to uplift, is that it explicitly states that people don't have to be disabled to experience ableism. And so this draws attention to just how pervasive ableism is in many people's daily lives. And I would argue that close to everyone experiences ableism, but of course we don't all experience ableism in the same ways or to the same extent. So while we can begin to recognize everyday forms of ableism, such as those that demand people be productive and hyper-capable, as I think is very relatable for people in academia. We can also use this definition to recognize how disabled and other marginalized peoples face intertwined oppressions around being judged less valuable, capable, or worthy. So I wrote down uh, the systemic oppression of disabled people, including both bigotry and more systemic or subtle exclusions and hardships. Um, and with specific reference to the social model of disability, uh, which has its drawbacks, but um, is, the, is the idea that in, uh, unlike the medical model, which says that uh, disabled bodies and minds are broken and need to be fixed, or the charity model, which says that we disabled people are should be objects of pity and charity, the social model says that, uh, yes, bodies and minds can be different from each other, but the problem is not differences or impairments. It's actually the, the society that values, uh, similar to Rebecca Eli's definition, that society puts value uh, differently on different kinds of bodies and minds. In terms of who's affected, so within my research in archaeology, I've thought a lot about how some disabilities are more apparent than others. And so some of my interviewees who use mobility aids or have, you know, visibly differently shaped bodies than the what's expected just often face a lot of real just outright hostility, being shut out of field experiences and being subjected to just constant doubt about their competence and ability being seen as burdens. And then there are some disabilities, I think actually some of the most common ones in archaeology are um, non-apparent. And so these might include mental health, some mental health disabilities, um, some chronic health conditions. And so for a lot of people like me with non-apparent disabilities, the sort of default uh, is to pass as non-disabled because people just look at you and think that you're not disabled. And so, of course, it's impossible to perfectly pass all the time because things come up about how your body works or how your mind works. Eventually, uh, sort of uh, people 
often choose to disclose their disability or um, don't have a choice and something becomes evident to other people. Uh, and of course, there are disabilities that uh, don't fit neatly into this binary. No binary actually works well. Um, there are people who, it, depending on the context, it may be very evident to others that they're disabled or not very evident in a different context. Some people have both apparent disabilities and non-apparent disabilities, but people who are often passing as non-disabled are somewhat less likely to face hostility, but they are often dealing with systemic barriers about the way that their school or workplace works is just not made to work for their body. Um, but then there's this sort of constant threat of outright hostility if you do disclose or are outed as disabled. But then there are also a lot of people who don't actually think of themselves as disabled, but could fall under the umbrella. I was in that category till a few years ago. I now think of myself as always having been disabled, but some of my disabilities come from a health condition that my mom had when I was in utero. So there's never been a time when I was non-disabled, but uh, all of the medical professionals and my family were very invested in me being normal. Um, throughout my childhood. And now I'm married to a disability justice community organizer. So I foiled the plans to make me think of myself as normal and non-disabled. So now I embrace a disability identity, but took until adulthood to get there to actually think of myself as disabled. And so I think there are a lot of archaeologists, especially who have some of the more common mental health disabilities like depression and anxiety or learning disabilities or chronic health conditions, uh, don't necessarily think of themselves as disabled, but are nonetheless targeted by ableist systems. But then I agree with Re Rebecca Eli that actually everyone is affected by by disability, and so I, and and by um, ableism. Uh, in archaeology, in my interviews, I heard a lot of stories about people in fieldwork specifically. There's this very like macho ableist culture. Um, and so uh, there's pressure to sort of keep up with the group and be able to do these difficult physical tasks that require a lot of strength and stamina and people often injure themselves sort of trying to keep up. And then so people actually become disabled because of the discipline's culture of <laughs> expecting people to be non-disabled and be so strong. And so ironically, that ends up creating disability because you're not supposed to take your time and do things at your own pace. You're supposed to keep up and then people end up hurting themselves. This sort of macho patriarchal culture is really intertwined with ableism in field work. And so I think it hurts um, a lot of women and, and people with disabilities and people of sort of any gender other than cis men um, and it, because of that intertwining. And then I think that like the discipline as a whole is hurt by ableism because we're all by sort of pushing disabled people out of archeological research, we lose disabled perspectives. And it's really important to have disabled people involved in research, especially when you're studying disabled people. And all archeologists are constantly studying disabled people. Because if you think about the span of human history that archeologists study, there are disabled people in every society and like large numbers of disabled people um, and whether or not they think of themselves as disabled in any similar way to the construction in you know the the archaeologist society is is an open question but we study people with all kinds of bodies and minds throughout history and so the disability rights slogan of nothing about us without us stands true and I think that we can't really 
Um, if disabled people aren't involved in the interpretation, how can we possibly understand the lives of disabled people in the past? And if our goal is to understand the lives of people in the past, that has to include disabled people in the present. So it, it ends up shaping everyone's experience, I think, in different ways. Thanks so much for that. I wanted to follow up on that and ask if each of you could say, what are the unique challenges that ableism poses in anthropology compared to other academic disciplines and spaces? Yeah, I guess to sort of continue the, this, fo in archeology span specifically, I think the focus on field work is, is a big problem. Uh, and it's a problem in a lot of ways, uh, not just ableism, but also archaeological fieldwork has historically been very colonialist. The sexual violence that happens among archaeologists happens in field contexts. Fieldwork is often unwelcoming to people who have care responsibilities for children or elders. There's all, we also have a curation crisis where archaeologists have been excavating so many objects for so many decades that now we don't actually have the like <laughs> sufficient facilities to keep excavating more stuff and actually curate it well. Uh, so it's like maybe not great to just be continuing to dig at the speed that we're digging um, before we address that. Um, but I think, yeah, there's this sort of sense that people who don't do field work aren't really doing archaeology. Um, and there's this privileging of field work over lab work that can be a big problem for disabled folks because. I had so many different interviewees with all different kinds of disability tell me that the lab was more accessible to them than the field. And so that was true for someone who had a mobility-related disability and uses crutches because a lot of field sites are very uneven terrain and involve some like hiking and climbing to get to them. And so he has a, he had difficulty just navigating the site. You know, archaeological field sites generally don't conform to <laughs> the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and so there's that sort of obvious piece. But I also had an archaeologist who is hard of hearing tell me that she had difficulty in the field because field work can be so loud and there's lots of people using different tools and talking and there's environmental noise. And so she needs to be able to see people and read their lips um, when they're talking to her. And in the field, it's very typical for someone to sort of come up behind you and start asking you a question. And she wouldn't even realize that someone was talking to her uh, with all this background noise until they were done with their question. And then she'd have to turn around and ask them to repeat it with her looking at them. And lab spaces are often like quieter and more controlled. So that's less likely to happen. I also had an autistic interviewee tell me that the lab works better for her because it again it's less sensorily overwhelming so that's a you know different from being hard of hearing but um just having a sort of quieter space made it much easier for her to focus and so there are all these people who you know lab work is an essential part of archaeology why are we digging things up if we're not going to study them and analyze them and write about them and it's a space where certain people are just more able to work well. Um, and yet this sort of emphasis on field work, uh, which just doesn't work for a whole lot of different people with disabilities is sort of seen as the like gold standard of archeology. span And so that, that's a sort of unique challenge that we have in archeology. span And I think that this is, this can be true across the subfields of anthropology as well. Um, obviously, everyone else on this call can speak about ethnographic fieldwork with more sort of expertise than I have, but um, a lot of bioarchaeologists, 
uh, do field work as well. So this sort of emphasis on like going out to the field, even if the field work itself looks different, it can often have a lot of access barriers. Um, and this sort of prizing of going to the field as a sort of rite of passage to becoming a real anthropologist is a real problem because there are actually lots of different ways to do anthropology and we should all be able to to both use the methods that best apply to our uh, research questions, but also the methods that work best for us. Yeah, so similarly, I would identify fieldwork as a pretty unique barrier in ethnography as well. And speaking to some of the dynamics that Laura just pointed out around really valuing and prizing a certain mode of fieldwork as the ideal way to do research what was interesting for me was just how much I internalized that when planning my PhD research and feeling like if I, even though I'm in a department that has a lot of anthropologists working within the U.S., within, you know, fairly local context, it was actually really difficult for me to feel confident doing field work that sort of looked very different than kind of the standard Boazian model. But in addition to field work, something I've noticed that I don't know is entirely unique to cultural anthropology, but is that we have a real disciplinary impulse towards criticality that I think sometimes furthers rather rather than addressing ableism. So while anthropologists of all types and definitely ethnographers have tools for recognizing ableism in terms of recognized social structures and power relationships. I've noticed that in my experiences, this can be really misdirected when it comes to ableism within classroom settings. And I think there's lots of space to be critical of our institutions and how they handle disability accommodations. That's a process that generally does not work as well as people think it works. But when it comes to anthropology professors in particular, I've observed a pattern where people will be critical of these structures in a way that works to deny students accommodations. And so speaking autoethnographically here, I've had professors refer to disability accommodations as quote unquote neoliberal or as surveillance or as overreach into their teaching. And I think these come from really deep-seated disciplinary tendencies to want to be critical of our institutions, but that this sort of turns requests for access into a very intellectual exercise rather than using this as a chance to address ableism and work alongside disabled students. So what kinds of efforts is higher education making that you have come across to address ableism? What steps would be useful in continuing to address everyday ableism? One thing I see becoming more popular on a few campuses is the idea of having a disability cultural center, something alongside what campuses might offer in terms of an LGBTQ center or a Black cultural center or other sorts of spaces that would bring disabled people to connect with each other. And I think generally bringing disability into campus conversations about diversity is important and is a very different framing than people are necessarily 
familiar with when it comes to disability. And of course, diversity and inclusion efforts often fall short. I think critical disability studies programs are another really vital space for teaching people to recognize and challenge ableism, both inside and outside of higher education. And really, ableism is just so foundational to higher education that I think it would really take a radical abolitionist shift in what our universities look like to truly address everyday ableism in academia. But in the meantime, of course, there are prefigurative politics and care work that can make a very meaningful difference on a smaller scale. I mean, I'm extremely grateful to academic mentors and friends who have been able to take on this work in various ways from day-to-day -day emotional support and engaging advocacy on my behalf and finding ways to support disabled students and coworkers while also learning how to recognize ableism and work to mitigate it, especially when it brings you up against institutional norms, I think is a really important skill set for people in higher education to learn. I absolutely agree with all of that. I, um, when thinking about what would be useful in continuing to address it, I wrote abolishing capitalism, question mark. Um, so I think, that, yeah, I, I think that ableism is so deeply rooted into all of our structures. It's, it's hard to imagine, like, fully getting rid of it without just enormous amounts of change. But then within the institutions that we have, I think that there's a lot to be done, just like Rebecca Eli said. I absolutely agree about disability studies and disability cultural centers being really essential in this work. I think that universities have a tendency to put disability just in the realm of student services and specifically often just undergraduate student services. And so... This is not to say that disability services at universities are off, are so great for undergrads, but that's often where the only effort is being put. Um, and so the you know, a university will have a, a disability services office that provides accommodations to undergraduates, at least some of the time, at least some accommodations to at least some students. These can be really complicated because students often require very specific kinds of documentation in order to prove that they have a certain type of disability, which can be very difficult and expensive to, to acquire. It's certainly not perfect, but then when I, I kept hearing from my interviewees that when they left their undergraduate education and became graduate students, the kinds of services that they had used to get from a disability services office were no longer sufficient to support them as they were sort of moving into being academic colleagues themselves. And so one of the PhD students I spoke to told me about how when she was still taking courses in her first couple of years of graduate school, she was able to get accommodations for her courses negotiated through the disability services office at her university. But then when she started teaching uh, as a teaching assistant, she was unable to get any kind of accommodations for her teaching. And the disability services office for students said, well, we just help students, not teachers. And then the person she was told to go to to talk about it said, well, I only work with faculty and you're a graduate student. So she got sort of stuck in between and unable to get any kind of support. Um, and then 
I think it, it's a it's a big problem even for faculty and staff that accommodations are offered to students that are often not offered uh, to faculty and staff. And so I think part of what we need to do is make clear that disability is not just that, that people don't stop having disabilities when they graduate from undergrad. Um, and people, students with disabilities don't just leave higher education forever uh, when they get an undergraduate degree. Like we're still here in your departments, in your classrooms. Um, and so we need to be thinking about disability much more broadly than, you know, offering extra time on tests. As important as offering extra time on tests is, um, it, not all of us are taking tests. <laughs> and so um, we just need a, a sort of broader view beyond student services. But yeah, I think that mutual support and networking and mentorship is where I see a lot of hope. I mean, we see this in the Society for Disability Studies, uh, sort of interdisciplinarily. We see this in, in anthropology. I see this in the diver uh, Disability Research Interest Group of the um, American Anthropological Association. And then within archaeology, based in the UK, there's the Enabled Archaeology Foundation and then the Disabled Archaeologist Network, which I've been part of founding in the past uh, year and a half or so, which is a, a sort of international uh, network of um, disabled archaeologists ranging from undergrads to senior scholars and working in all different kinds of contexts and with all kinds of disabilities. And so a lot of what I've been hearing from other folks involved in the Disabled Archaeologists Network is that um, a lot of disabled folks feel really isolated in their professional contexts and their workplaces or in their schools. Uh, people are often like the only person with a disability or the only person with their kind of disability, just sort of getting together <laughs> and, and finding uh, people who have had similar experiences and being able to strategize together um, about how to approach things can be really helpful because it's just exhausting to be sort of feeling like you're fighting this fight alone. Um, and so having some, yeah, like companionship and people to bounce ideas off of and learn from and strategize with is really exciting. And so we're actually, one of our projects that's coming up is set up some mentorship relationships. We've gathered information from our members about who would be interested in doing some mentoring and about what kinds of topics and who would be interested in receiving mentoring and about what kinds of topics. So we're going to be doing some pairing people together uh, to help facilitate that. The sort of solidarity along the way uh, is, is really essential. What made these resistance efforts successful? Um, alternatively, at what points did you notice that these efforts may not have been as successful as intended? Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I felt a little stumped by this at first because I think that um, a lot of the resistance, the ableism that's happening in archaeology is that's organized on any scale <laughs> seems pretty new, and so it's hard to say what's successful yet. There are disabled archaeologists who have been, you know, working on these things individually for for certainly for decades, um, but having sort of organized efforts is is so is pretty new. Um, but I'm seeing a lot of hope in some of these organized communities. And the the hope I see is when um, people are working together and being creative and flexible. 
Um, so an example is I um, was part of a panel at the Society for American Archaeology meeting this year. We had to submit our abstract last September uh, for a conference that was at the end of March and beginning of April this year. And so when we submitted this abstract, we went to have a panel of, uh, of disabled archaeologists talking about disability in archaeology. And we didn't know what the state of the pandemic would be in March and April at the time that we submitted the abstract. And so we submitted it anyway, um, but we had no idea if the conference would be in person or what would happen. Uh, then a lot of us on the panel were really dismayed when we realized, you know, the Omicron wave was happening and the SAA just kept saying, we're going to meet in person, we're going to meet in person. And many of us sort of thought, well, I can't go to an in-person conference in a pandemic. Some folks ha were immune compromised. Um, some, some of us, like I have a child who's too young to get a vaccine. Um, and so my partner had been willing to take care of our baby alone for a few days so that I could go to the conference, but it wasn't workable for me to go to the conference and then come home in quarantine. That would be sort of too long to make that work. And so there were a whole bunch of us who were like, this is not safe and accessible to me. And so there were some people who were able to go and some people who weren't. And so what we ended up doing was we recorded on Zoom, we video recorded a panel discussion among all of us, almost all of us were able to get together in a Zoom room. And so we had a two hour time slot. And so we recorded an hour long panel discussion on Zoom. And then the people who were able to be there in person played the recording uh, in the room for the first hour and then had an informal conversation with members of the audience about uh, ableism in the discipline. And now we also have this video that uh, we're thinking about what to do with it next um, of this conversation uh, that can hopefully be shared with lots of people who weren't able to be in Chicago at that time for that reason. Um, and so we ended up being, despite the sort of lack of support for like a fully hybrid event, we were able to use the resources that we had. Uh, somebody who, uh, one of the panelists has access to captioning services from her university because of her own disability that she was able to use to get the video captioned. Um, so we were sort of able to all pool like, okay, who can be there in person? Who can be in a Zoom room at a particular time? And so by pooling our resources, we were able to not just cancel the conversation about ableism uh, because of, of the pandemic and the sort of structural ableism that leads to people insisting that we all get together in a room and breathe on each other despite the airborne pandemic um, and, and make it work. And so that sort of um, solidarity with each other and focus on trying to find a way that everyone can participate safely um, and being creative with our resources. That's the kind of initiative that I think will, will make the change. Yeah, conferences are such a large site of academic ableism, but I mm -hmm. did hear from one of my colleagues who was able to go to Chicago and who had excellent things to say about that panel. So I sounds like it was a great discussion and I'm glad you were able to make it work. I would mm -hmm. say in the context of my research and in thinking about connections with disability in higher education, the biggest form of resistance I found has absolutely been in forming disability communities because like Laura was saying earlier in response to the previous question, 
higher education treats disability in a very individualizing way through often through these student support services offices, which when they when these offices work, they are providing really important services, but they aren't necessarily addressing systemic problems. And in part, this is because of structures of privacy and protected health and student information that can really make it challenging for disabled people in higher education to find each other and connect and share resources and do all of that great mutual aid work. And so what I found is that being able to connect with people and experience what disability justice activist Mia Mingus terms access intimacy, even when it's you know, temporary or a very fleeting type of project or group or organizing effort has been really important. In some of my more recent dissertation research, when I've been able to collaborate and connect with autistic people, it has been a very powerful way to really think about how we're challenging ableist structures of knowledge about autism, particularly those that say autistic people don't have any interest in social and emotional connections, which I think really is very harmful to deny disabled people's sociality on some very deep levels. And higher education really even further individualizes disability. And so in thinking about the points where these efforts become maybe less successful, I think it's when efforts of community building really just end up putting the burden of change back onto disabled people because these require time and energy and in higher education, it's a context where those are things disabled people often lack, in part because we're joking, but it's because we're getting all of that extended testing time <laughs> eating up our schedules. <laughs> and so I think disabled people bring expertise absolutely into conversations about ableism. It's also really important to shift or more evenly distribute this labor, especially when it's uncompensated labor off of disabled people and have non-disabled people who can act as accomplices and support these efforts. Thank you so much for this uh, very insightful answers. So um, the next question that I wanted to ask you uh, would be, how does technology play into perpetuating or addressing ableism in anthropology and higher education in your experience? So as someone working in multimodal anthropology, th there are a lot of critiques of technology and the technological fix that I think are really important. And I also think technology can be something generative, generative of access, of affordances, of knowledge. And so in the context of the autistic self-advocacy movement, technology and the internet have been very crucial tools for connecting and sharing experiences. And this has also been a pretty similar thing for me when it comes to connecting with other disabled academics and forming various types of 
networks that are dispersed and maybe asynchronous and letting people collaborate over distances. I think the intersection of disability and technology is such an important one. And while technology can undoubtedly be very ableist, I think technology also really draws attention to how bodies are differently reliant on technology, especially when it's coming from a crypt techno science informed perspective. And in terms of knitting, I'd say knitting fits kind of uneasily in discussions of technology, but I do like to think of knitting as sort of an assistive technology in my case, in that it really facilitates and shapes how I interact with other people and process knowledge and what that really looks like in terms of neurodivergent research relations where it's so much easier to engage in to engage in knitting sort of as a technological way to connect with other people to jumpstart conversations and is a form of like shaping knowledge and also just of spending time where you're thinking and processing knowledge. And I think kind of this sort of craft technology, crypt technoscience mode of ethnography has implications for thinking about ableism in higher education and well beyond that. Yes, I really agree that technology is so um, intertwined with disability and that has both real possibilities in um, when we think about crypt technoscience, exactly, but, um, but also can be when it's viewed as a sort of quick fix, it can be a real problem. For example, in the pandemic, um, like during the pandemic, all being so separate, Zoom has, the use of Zoom has made so many conversations able to happen in ways that they weren't happening before. The Disabled Archaeologist Network didn't exist until now. And part of that is that it suddenly became very obvious that you could just, uh, like create a Zoom room and send the link to people and you could just get a whole lot of people together uh, from across continents. So many people knowing how to use Zoom, so many people having access to it, it makes things possible. But then I, I've really seen a, a captioning as an interesting example because yeah, like now automated captioning is much more available than it was even a few years ago. Like when I did my dissertation interviews as a way of speeding up the transcription process. Uh, I used a like automatic captioning service uh, to take these digital recordings and make these transcript files that I then had to very heavily edit in order to <laughs> make them useful. Uh, but it was still faster than transcribing myself and I didn't have a grant to cover transcription. Uh, so that was, uh, I, I was able to get a very small grant from my university that was able to cover, cover that and people hadn't heard of this. This was like new and exciting in, you know, 2017. Um, and now people often are turning on automatic captions on, uh, on their, you know, webinars and Zoom meetings. And it's cool that those are available and they're getting better, but there's still no, not a substitute for, yeah, like a live 
transcript uh, by a human professional <laughs> transcriptionist, especially when you're using, when there are people with different accents uh, or speaking different languages or using uh, technical jargon. Um, they're just, the, the automatic captions are really like terrible <laughs> often and are not able to like adequately create access. And so when we actually think about the access needs that people have and figure out what resources we have that can meet those needs that can be part of the tools that we have but when we think oh we can use technology to fix this problem where there's someone who needs captioning and like cool just turn on the captions and be done uh, often we end up um, just sort of reinforcing ableism uh, when that is insufficient for actually creating access and so yeah, I think I think when we when we approach using technology with a sort of yeah, a sense of creativity and flexibility and commitment to doing the best we can to to make our communities accessible, that technology can be really powerful and when we view it as a like uh, these burdensome disabled people are just like demanding that I do something, I guess I'll turn on the automatic captions and check that box and be done with it, then it certainly doesn't <laughs> that that's not, you know, creating access in a, in a meaningful way. And so, yeah, to me, it's about the like attitudes with which we use technology. Technology itself is just a tool that can be used for either, um, yeah, making change, making access, creating community, or just reinforcing uh, oppressive systems. welcome any feedback that you may have on this episode or the podcast more broadly, feel free to contact us at platypod at castat.org. You can subscribe to this podcast on any platform that you use to listen to your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to listen today.